वेलकम टू सिंटॉक The Sintalkers around the table today discuss the out-of-place people. We'll think about being in and out of place in a variety of contexts. I always want to be psychologically at ease. Are we out of place without each other? Are places merely spatial? Is disability more than individual impairment? How do actors understand their role? What plays a greater role here, imagination or experience? What is the relationship between psychological experience and social norms? What does the market do? Can authenticity be faked? Can one be out of place in oneself? and what is the long term future of access exclusion belonging mobility tribes and social strata we are pleased and privileged to have three sin talkers with us here today professor rachna johri she is trained as a psychologist and has been with delhi university and ambedkar university until recently She has been interested in questions of gender, marginality, and the intersection between the social world and mental health. Professor Mazhar Kamran, he makes both narrative and documentary films and has worked in the Bombay film industry for more than two decades. He teaches world cinema and filmmaking at School of Design at IIT Bombay. And Dr. Bindu Lakshmi Patadat Her earlier training was in anthropology and ethnography and her recent interests are feminist disability studies. She is from TIS in Mumbai. So uh Rachna why don't we set the ball rolling with you um with what comes to mind as you think of this title and probably somewhat theoretically notionally conceptually what do you make of the word place in particular what is that thing configuration relationality whatever because probably that's a more important thing to get one's grip on and then we'll go from there and open open other questions from there so place and space are clearly linked but the fact that there is space doesn't really make it a place in the sense that the idea of place it seems to me uh involves a sense of belonging or a sense of identity associated with a particular space i think that it's very interesting um to look at language because we find the word place comes up very often in language and when it comes up we find that it indicates the way in which the idea of place works Mm-hmm. so for example you say you know i feel out of place or this seems to be in place and so on and so forth so clearly there is a connection and between being becoming experience and where you are located uh i would tend to think that from the psychosocial perspective that i use that you really cannot 
tear apart a person's sense of himself or herself with the place you know which they inhabit and 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 does the social cast a shadow on the mind as it vice versa as it reflexive uh yeah so this is interesting and i uh, in the context of this uh, you know conversation in particular have been thinking about it that on the one hand i think that we all get our sense of self from the spaces and the persons inhabiting those spaces but on the other hand i think that there is a tendency and maybe this is something i take from psychoanalysis and freud's work in particular that there is an inherent tension in human beings between the desire to belong and the desire to escape what we belong in so what the social does is that it can create a world if it is a reasonably supportive social and a reasonably supportive emotional world from the child's perspective mm-hmm. it can give you a sense of fairly stable belonging which keeps you going which which is like a feeling of being at home and when you are feeling at home you are able to lose yourself in your work in play in love for that matter without having too much conflict or too much um dejection too much frustration now mm. i don't think on the other hand that this is equally available to everyone so therefore i do think that the social uh impacts for example we know and i don't think it's very new for those of us who are in india we know that if you're a dalit if you are even a woman or if you are someone who's disabled or who has a queer gender identity then even if you have been given primary support of an emotional nature from your family for example when you step out into the larger world you actually find yourself being ostracized quite often or being told that this is not the place to which you belong so from family to social social as greater circumference it's wider out it's larger than family i would say that this is where it's complicated i would say that the family and i don't mean just a particular kind of family i mean those people who are there in your early life as your caretakers could be you know a standard nuclear arranged joint family or it could be an alternative family but people who've been there in the you know providing an emotional circumference right within which the child is growing up I think they do give the child the capacity to feel at home and the capacity for security and therefore also exploring the world outside. But when the child is exploring the world outside, not just the child, much more when you're an adolescent, much more when you're a college student for example, you find that you know even those things which you have been allowed to feel at home by those who loved or cared for you, suddenly there are no public spaces where you can enter but does it help to have uh have had that experience or capacity as you call it of having felt secure and loved and so on does it help is that helpful in the transition i think it's helpful in the sense that probably 
you will not have a very major fragmentation. You will not feel completely, uh, you know, as if you have lost your mind or you will not have a breakdown. You probably will hopefully not commit suicide, you know. So because you have this inner resource. But on the other and hand, what is, what is? yeah, I just say this though that on the other hand, I think quantifying this is very difficult because different people are different, and for some of them, for some reason, the social world has a very major impact, and they don't return to the people they love. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Of you course. know, to get succulents from them, and that's where it becomes really tragic. And what is that inner resource? Is it just confidence? It's what? What is it? If you had to, resource is an interesting word, but mm -hmm. it somehow doesn't uh, it doesn't I, fully articulate what yeah. you might be trying to say so i think the psychoanalytical tradition would say two things one they will say that there will always be a restlessness in the person mm -hmm. so that you may well want to exceed that which is given to you or that which is provided to you so that's one type of question and maybe we can come back to it later Mm -hmm. But the other would be that the infant really doesn't have attachments when he or she is born. They don't actually know where they belong. They, in fact, belong to no one yeah. in particular. Yeah. And their sense of belonging to someone is something which emerges. Which is also learned and taught. It's not so much learned, I think, but it is very much... It's a latent. product of the mirroring that the child receives from the world around. Yeah. And also from the holding. These are the technical terms we sure, use, right? Sure. The kind of blanket of security that the child is provided with. So that the child starts to feel that there is a person to whom, or persons, to whom I am significantly attached. I think that capacity to get attached is also necessary for our later attachments. Interesting. So when we reach a new place also, we bring a bit of the older in it. But along with that, so we may search for something familiar. But along with that searching for something familiar, we are also interested in the new. And we are interested because we have a secure attachment from the past and also are looking for secure attachments to what we will see in the new world that we have entered. So I think the capacity to attach yourself to things. And are attachments necessary? Uh, I, it sounds like a stupid question. No, but, well, I see uh, psychologists would say attachments are necessary. And there always are attachments. Some of them are secure. Unfortunately, many of them are insecure. So when the attachment is insecure, and this is where, unfortunately, the social and the, psych the inner can psychic. come together, right? Yeah. That when you already are insecurely attached and you are faced with a very traumatizing world, it's much more difficult for you to negotiate it. Because even if the world is not very punitive in nature, if the nature of your own attachments are deeply insecure, you can actually start seeing the world as a much that. more dangerous place. Yeah. than it really is. And we, we work with that always, always in the field of mental health. The questions here are, we should neither sort of uh, assume that the social world is not discriminatory, 
nor should we assume that there isn't a space for psychic processes. I think both of these are very important and they have to be looked at simultaneously. Where are you on this, Bindu? I think uh, Rashna has brought up a few very interesting points. Um, you've thought about disability, for example, quite a bit over the years. Is mm-hmm. what is, and if one had to stay around that notion for a bit, is there something specific about the idea, a notion, or experience of disability, which where you think there are points of departure or similarity to what to what Rashna is saying? Yeah. So uh, I'm uh, listening to Rashna. I was wondering. Uh, one way to think about uh, disability and you know i want to make this distinction between disability and impairment at sure. one point impairment one uh, seem to think about uh, there is something to do with your material body your physical body to per se the moment we talk about disability we are talking about a social world which is uh, practices that are perhaps discriminatory which is uh, making it disabling which uh, so that uh, in fact take that uh, individual onus of you no know, not uh, trying to think about this uh, you know the problem lies with you as a person but there is something to do with uh, the social environment at the place where you belong so moving on from there to understand uh, uh, how do you, you know how do i try to think about place and you know in terms of uh, different bodies fit in in different places i would say at one level we all perform to fit in we need to be constantly perform to fit in whatever in in terms of our own diversity e- e- even the so called non impaired non disabled non disabled non impaired everybody perform to fit in because we want and we are trying to fit into a so called normative world that is how norms which get also is not static but yeah sure it is it is performed daily by everybody it is we all perform and get that is how norms get if i try to borrow it from judith butler's uh, performativity we you know repetitively do this you no know, repetitive stylization of our act that's what uh, butler talks about performativity to fit into and create norms while creating that norms uh, what i feel the so called uh, the able bodied uh no that is where the normative world occupy and we constantly try to fit in and create norms there are exclusionary practices that get constituted and that is one of the ways in which during this stylized performance uh, when we try to fit into is that the, inevitable or unfortunate or uh, like what i'm not quite sure whether it is inevitable or unfortunate but i think it has been constantly you know as i speak to you we try to perform in a particular way you want to fit in because i don't want to transgress transgressing has you know different kind of repercussions and different context so uh, then uh, there are certain norms get constituted and exclusionary practices would come in doesn't mean that those exclusionary uh, practices are just black and white i don't think that it is you know there are norms over here and there are you no know, outside the norms there are practices rather i would say that even those who are transgressing not necessarily doesn't you know fit into the so called norm also get their own sense of belonging through different network and kinship practices that's why you know somewhere probably i will uh, depart a little bit from what rajna said uh, about that you know our own insecurity about certain spaces but i think even in those insecure spaces one can find a sense of belonging i feel uh, you know my own work with uh, you know looking at uh, you know for example 
working with the family of you know, parents with the children in autism spectrum i have seen that it is not necessarily they all uh, you know imagining a kinship in a normative way there are also really interesting forms of kinship network emerging from parents and parental network they communicate and so there are different kind of imagination different kind of place making that is happening in that sense of belonging and i think that is fascinating it so it is not necessarily always then an insecure space over there it is also something a scope or, or probably a hope to create uh, a world there is a future to think about different ways to think outside the normative framework there But are this is also through processes of collectivization looking for kinship as you calling it and so on absolutely yeah. uh, there must be situations where there are like true individuals like in singular people who are let's call them misfits or who don't fit in and so on are there um, would there be strategies to deal with those kinds of situations could be there are no i'm not uh, disagreeing that there won't you know, there will be individual but i don't uh, necessarily right now i'm thinking about in terms in terms of this collectivization what hmm. is that collective ways in which you know different network and a mutual sense of and relationality that comes hmm. through mm. that process in that place making and mm. that is the future which i see in terms of you no know, in this place making project where you no know, uh, we can move out of this so called insecurity of course there are you know individuals who are also not necessarily uh, you know fitting there or you no know, misfit but uh, i'm at this moment i don't necessarily are there aberrations are there I aberrations as far as human beings go there i won't i don't know i would call it as aberration at this moment uh, rather i would say that we are all living in this huge diversity in that spectrum in which people you know try to fit in in different ways and or not fit in it sounds like a very non humanistic position to take but yeah. are, are there other aberrations are there undesirable again all of the sounds very very cruel but are there evil bad people etc you, you know what i mean mm-hmm. uh, who might fit not fit feel like they're fitting into the world or whatever it's it's a different question i get it mm-hmm. it's not exactly what you were saying i'm so i'm taking you elsewhere no no that's fine in first i'd like to say that i'm not actually disagreeing with anything that you said uh, bindu you know mm-hmm. i mean i think that mm-hmm. there's a continuum mm-hmm. huh, in all these mm-hmm. processes but As far as the question of evil people is concerned. Yeah. I think that is also a question that we've grappled with for a long time. You know, we have the category of a psychopath for example. Yeah, of mm-hmm. course. And it is interesting to note that when we take a constructivist perspective for example or a Foucauldian one, yeah. We don't always think about certain kinds of people. We think more about depressed people or yeah, people yeah. who are explicitly marginalized but mm. people who are actually extremely authoritarian in their character mm-hmm. and can be narcissistic to the point of damaging others without batting an eyelid yes right we have more trouble dealing with them now i with my training would find it difficult to say that any human being emerges the way they are simply because of their genetic structure or their you know they were born that way so there is a humanist in me in that sense who would tend to say 
that something went wrong to make a person what they are. However, again, I would say that this is not to be thought of something as something that happens only in the personal domain. Mm-hmm. I do actually think that the, the social world, the subgroups do produce and pathology, no, pathology. And this is something like the question has been asked many times. How did Hitler come to be? Yeah. Mm-hmm. And people like Eric Fromm and all long ago, oh, you know, yeah. the entire mm-hmm. sort of Marxist Absolutely. psychoanalytical tradition mm-hmm. talked about authoritarian societies yeah. and how those structures percolated into the family system. Yeah. Right. So families, and I think we see this around us all the time. So families train, but they are also not training outside the social world, yeah, right? Yeah. There is a particular kind of market that exists, there's a particular set of discourses that exist, yeah. which actually determine what is considered to be right, what is wrong, there's nothing grey. There are those who are superior, flip. those who are inferior, the inferior have to be made into scapegoats, yeah. the superior mm-hmm. have to be, you know, praised and they have to be allowed to lord over you and so on and so forth. So therefore there is, I think, a greater problem these are the people that one would wish that they did not exist because they do a lot of damage to others more yeah. than to themselves. I think the question is like what, uh, obviously they have a different inner articulation, right? They have a certain cosmology they built and uh, obviously a certain kind of reasoning, etc., which we'll get to. We'll get to you, Mazar. How do you think of, uh, and obviously you're not a psychoanalyst or, any of that, but you think about people, you think about characters, you've thought about situations, you've made films and looked at real and fictional characters. Um, so clearly there's something that you try to distill or infer or imply um, when, when you essentialize people as characters and so on. And if one were to ask you this question of being in sync or fitting in and so on, uh, where would you be? What comes to mind? So, yeah, I mean, yeah. So, as uh, someone working in with people, you know, trying to understand, my work is actually uh, a little different from, say, a psychologist would, would uh, focus on, uh, is about, you know, understanding and then providing some kind of help. Mine is to understand, actually. And uh, I don't go to that next step. I can, I mean, in my own way. So uh, I, I look at people and try to understand them and, and the relationships also. And what makes them happy, what makes them sad, what makes them angry, what makes them calm and content. All these kind of things do go on, you know, all the time, you know. Why is someone angry or why is someone happy or why is someone dissatisfied? Do you, do you, do you see and types of people or there are I just there look are at people and uh, individuals and in their relationships. But do you see categories so, of people? Are, are, are there categories of people who behave in somewhat predictable kind of No. Uh, I look uh, in a sense, I would say if there is a category, I mean, I could say that urban I've grown up in cities, I've lived in cities, so I only know that. So I look at people in the cities and those things, they are, do keep uh, floating and trying to find out 
what it means so if you have to cast for the role to, of a villager or something um, i've done that what do you do uh, but it may not be very accurate there you know because my experiences i mean have been there through journeys and travels and so on but i i may not be very accurate in capturing uh, villagers uh, you know we may look at it in a very simplistic way but i think uh, urban life i would have a, a better understanding and uh, so coming if i were to connect to uh, from the conversation so far uh, one is you know uh, like rachna's uh, insights into uh, you know what the early years of growing up do to us you know uh that is not available to me in a sense i would say and i look at people as grown ups and uh, it is not always perhaps you may agree or not and always that we can link back to sometimes we can sometimes we cannot so looking at grown ups uh, you know and uh, what is uh, again same what is causing all these emotional uh, Uh, because there's this whole idea so, of uh, being able to idea of empathy idea of being able to relate yes, to empathy, another kind of person or situation empathy is something i think uh, somebody wants to do this kind of thing needs to have so uh, it is very very important is it a necessity to be an actor to be not an actor but uh, is just some some quality that you need to have to empathize you know because whether it's uh, a fiction or, uh, or like a documentary i have to somewhere get get there you know i it's not like a scientific thing But it's not like be, be, it's not generally... even like say research i'm not documenting like that because you need to understand i'm dealing with sort of life and emotions and not like a scientist but as a human but what does get there mean i have to feel what the person is feeling how do you know what the other person is feeling that's what there's no objective thing it's just <laughs> you know you you are intuitive it, and i just... think lot of us have this inborn uh, ability lot of us have it even actors also have it that they are able to inhabit another life and it is such people who kind of gravitate towards this medium maybe i don't know rachna can <laughs> throw more light on the explanation of it but Rajna like charges i said throw I, light on those sorts of so things mine is just <laughs> observations <laughs> i'm just walking you know with my intuition and my observations in this uh, and i i'm not a very theoretical person so i feel i have some antennae which <laughs> can help me get there you know and then you just trust your and i trust because i as in when Okay, what would be my say if I make something and I present it and I see that it is moving people? So I think somewhere I've succeeded. And if it is leaving everyone indifferent, then I think I've failed in in what I am calling getting there, isn't it? So, so that's how it goes, you know. So yeah, and on belonging, I have a sort of like again coming from a, what you call urban spaces, I have a certain understanding of it that. how can you belong this is a big question for me you know like i said not just about growing up in early years but also like how do you the sense of belonging you know because now you 
for a lot of people you don't earn and live where you were born you know so people are constantly moving around and then how do you belong to that space is what decides the say the network of life today if we if we look at urban lives you know so that question uh, is quite there in my mind you know and i'm trying to understand that but home and doesn't need to be a place right it it could be it could even be inside you in some way if you if you have those both, relations both both so what i feel you know like what what role does uh, let's say if we had to stick to the dichotomy of imagination and experience for a second and as far as you know creating these relatable uh, fictional narrative kind of thing let's call the movies go um, is imagination a necessary resource does one necessarily need experience to both inhabit or replicate or repeat those situations and characters and and if both, you were moving uh, making both, a movie of jesus christ or something nobody has been jesus christ yeah. so how so does that's one where act you like take jesus a leap christ? of yeah imagination yeah so so yeah this so the uh, more general thing would be to be able to put yourself in somebody's shoes you know But how that the question is how and that's what actors do that's what writers also do you know you kind of i think to an extent we are able to do it i don't how? know how it is uh, that we do it but we can you know um but uh, it, it is a sort of ability which can be cultivated and you can get better at it that is also a side to that you know that's why writers consistently produce novels which are readable and relatable you know it is something which can be uh, you can get better at it um but there is a certain ability that you can put yourself in somebody's shoes and imagine the world from there even though you have not lived that but if you have lived that life it is certainly going to help like i am not a dalit but can i tell a story about a dalit perhaps i can but someone who's actually a dalit will do a better thing than but me but perhaps the don't know storytelling like you huh? do perhaps huh? i mean there are different faculties involved right yeah. like just because you're dalit and you experience no i'm just something. saying if both have all other things remaining all common all other ceteris paribus mm-hmm. yeah all other things remaining mm-hmm. and the same then there is an edge to experience that you are able to do it better because uh, you have a visceral uh, thing memory of it you know uh, whereas for an other person it will be uh, more of imagination involved what's your take on this rashna do you do you think this is a certain kind of innate ability or learned or whatever ability to like why are some people a few people able to act or get into other characters can etc and some not like do you, besides hard work and training and those sorts of things is there something deeper what's your take you may or may not have thought about it no i do think that the word empathy which mother used is very important people do have different capacities and at the same time when i'm saying this i actually do not believe that any of us are static in any of our capacities i think we're constantly changing now what i think in fact if i'm working as a therapist or a counselor my work is a lot more like a filmmaker's in some senses i am working to bring about change but it's through a narrative process that i'm working i don't have any accurate understanding of what is happening with the person so it's my capacity to empathize with the other person that is going to help 
and as as far as techniques go does it help for you to play those scenes back take the person back to like in terms of it see different things will work in different circumstances but i would say that and maybe i'm playing the psychological part more here since you know there are several Again. of us in conversation mm-hmm. yeah. but i'm saying that i think that and this is my personal experience also that when you feel reasonably secure that something in you will remain intact regardless of your stepping into someone else's shoes you are more able to step into the other person's shoes and actually offer yourself to that person or become that person for some time and also maybe take something back from what you have learned in the process of playing that role so hold on to that so if 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 let's say a good person were acting like a bad person do they worry that they are somehow being bad people it's it's acting right like you get paid for it or whatever mm. so i mean are, are there other other genuine issues of this kind where people worry that if they were enacting a certain role or inhabiting a certain role or let's say broadway somebody's on a a character some people for 40, do worry about uh, yeah the people do worry about being in a uh, going into a dark space you know but they may do it like professionally okay it's my job i'll do it but not comfortable about it that is there is that a genuine And technical real risk or I think that when you put yourself in someone else's shoes it's let us say here you're playing the role of a really quote unquote evil person yeah some psychopath huh? yeah whatever you are you know some people do say that we're completely method actors and so on and I'm not a part of that profession but I would say that there is some chance that some of what you're playing is actually being experienced by you you know so you are getting in touch with parts of yourself which you may have not hitherto processed in yourself or come to know in yourself and that can feel dangerous again depending on areas of vulnerability and fragility within you i think different people will deal differently so i would not actually ever make a general policy about this i think you know i would say well people are welcomed to try i think in general you know uh, we were actually talking about this a little bit before that it's good to know evil parts of yourself as long as you don't enact them you know so it's good to know that there can you can feel murderous but not actually murder someone it's better to murder somebody in, in your, your imagination mind. in your mind <laughs> right. rather than rather than also sometimes to pretend that you are completely incapable and a lot of murders in the mind are prevented of, real murders right that's what it, it, it's it, a safety wall for safety well wall. i'm not saying I that like, i think that these are very difficult areas to talk about sure. but i think <laughs> you need a certain <laughs> amount of reservoir <laughs> of you know of intactness if i might use that mm. word within yourself and then you can actually explore more and sort of return taking bits and pieces with you which work for you and that reservoir can keep growing right in its it can keep growing throughout life i think so i think it can keep growing throughout life it should ideally so there grow. is no minimal core self and so on whatever i don't know where are you on this bindu so i have a take on this uh, idea of innateability 
ഒരുപാടുകാരി I think experience yeah, are always really? always already mediated mm. and I would say that experience are already you know because because norms pre-exist and you've learned a yeah, little bit of that experience are always it is not pre-discursive it is already part of a discourse it has been formed through the you know a context in which you are so I don't necessarily see something as innate ability in that sense I think you know when I say you know what I am my lived experience and it's in fact a really an interesting turning point from that early feminist articulation so lived experience early feminists talked about the idea of lived experience for a long time you know the lived experience of women lived experience becomes that the vantage point to talk about feminism but you know then later feminists started talking about experience cannot be just that essential category it is much more mediated so then when i see that I don't necessarily see that uh, kind of binary I'm acting uh, out someone else I am not again I'm not saying I really don't know how does it work in the film world but in our everyday life I feel we are always uh, you know living in a mediated world of uh, you know there is an experience which is shaped by a social world in which we live yeah there's something so semiotic I'm, there are uh, actions and symbols that pre-carry meanings and you invoke it them is. and so on. So, yeah. all the time. Yeah. So, I would say, you know, coming back to that, then experience has to be looked at as a theoretical category because earlier we tried to make it that they're an essential experience and then we can theorize as academicians uh, you know, outside the lived experience. And that has been a very problematic uh, uh, articulation. Then many scholars talked about it. They said, uh, you know, for example, when... uh no people started talking about don't treat us as your data uh no this yeah. is like there is an empirical world over there and then you would theorize outside that now that is uh, we have come to that point to understand experience are mediated and theoretical and and it is constantly shaping and processing in different ways i hope uh, no i'm trying to say that the inevitability when we try to connect with our own experience maybe we need to you know uh, spell it out a little bit more clearly what does that mean for uh this empathy generating business uh this business of being able to because if if people are out of place then they feel mm-hmm. out of place because perhaps they are not being understood or being related to appropriately sufficiently in the right register and so on so how do these insights uh some of which have come up in the conversation so far what does it do to like what are the design implications of how we construct the world around us is understanding sufficient or does something need to happen thereafter and so on it's an interesting question uh, because uh, for me again i'm thinking aloud at this moment of this uh, when we say empathy creation uh, where do we place the power hierarchy no empathy creating for whom from whom are we already you know created in a power uh, you know um, 
and of course victims empathize with the tormentors as well right i mean uh, there are other you mentioned power hierarchies yeah, yeah, but yeah, victims uh, can empathize with the yeah so uh, more than then empathy then i would say that can we uh, you know extend it a little bit to think about relationality relationality to think about uh, a world and that is where i think in ethics of care which i would see you know we care for each other and we need Uh, no uh, do do these so, things have a circumference a boundary a radius like how far does one go what does one include um is it all encompassing i i'm not quite sure whether there is a boundary i think it is much more it is evolving it is again contextual perhaps so for example when i say that i empathize with someone that also to do with that particular social context and that and it both the time and space in that sense temporality and speciality play a very crucial role in terms of you know to create uh, i empathize with uh, whom it is not necessarily for example if i say that uh, in a very able bodied universe with an ideology of ability around me uh, when i say that i empathize with someone there is a specific context to that but at the same time you know for example a person who is uh, using a mechanized wheelchair can come and say that come on wait a minute i'm not looking for your empathy i can move faster than you yeah. that is true you know there are uh, there's something agent show something and that is also about interdependence then you know how do we then think about uh, and again feminist uh, disability scholars talked about quite a bit uh, in length about uh, interdependence care relation and we don't then see empathy as a linear or uh, as a top down approach rather you would see empathy as uh, Uh, an ongoing project where you can bring in interdependence and relationality much more than ever actually you know in fact we are shifting <laughs> theoretically we are shifting registers mm. because in different <laughs> registers you will not use these terms like mm. so empathy will not be used by a certain kind of thinker a post structuralist mm-hmm. thinker will not usually talk about empathy at all and even if they do or for example i'd not so well versed with lacan but i think he would say that you know it's the failure of empathy which is important because that's where you understand the distinction between the self and the other otherwise you might be projecting yourself upon the other and imagining the other as if the other is you empathy is a dangerous word i actually agree uh with that i'm not sure how to locate it in the context of playing a role which is where it came from yeah where we imagine but imagination is a good word you know and it's different from empathy because and what what we're saying in imagination is i am adding or i'm bringing ingredients of my experience from wherever i have picked it up right but and, also just imagining it out of nothing like yeah sure yeah That, I mean, even if it's delinked from experience, but yeah, it could be vicarious, just having read books or something. I don't think it can be delinked from experience, and actually, it's not delinked from language mm-hmm. for that matter, which is yeah. what she's saying. Right. So, what seems to be delinked is often not delinked, and which is why there is a danger of actually imagining the other on our own terms, and this is the biggest challenge. that and in fact if we come back to the idea of place for a moment the biggest challenge is if i think i'm making you at home 
am I actually making you at home? Yeah, yeah, because yeah. my idea of home has all the vestiges of power and so on and so forth in it, right? And I might think that I'm constructing a home for you and you may feel entirely homeless. It may be too patronizing. You might feel like you're exiled yeah. in that home, actually, you know? So I think that, and this is, of course, that colonial thing, isn't it? Yeah. Like, yeah. I know what your home should be like, yeah, yeah, yeah. <laughs> which we are doing all the time. Yeah, uh, white man's burden, but some... Which we are also playing. Yeah. Yeah. It's somewhat patronizing. So what does one do? Or one not, one not to just try and understand these things and it's... But uh, yeah. I just wanted to add to yeah. that. I think this is being construed in real life, whereas what one is talking about is not real life. Yeah. It mm -hmm. is in the context of creating a work. Mm -hmm. So there may be all these ethical issues if... In real life, I start saying that I empathize mm. with such and such. And that is if, a different category, I think. So you're saying I'm that not on a, the limited question. In, I, I, in my, I, it may not be the accurate word, but it has a very limited meaning. That I'm trying my best because I want to create a character who say doesn't have, who's not able-bodied. But I'm trying my best to be like that through my imagination in order to create it a little better than by remaining very detached. This is how... Does it help to... Uh, so, so, so it is a emotional and feeling uh, sort of sensorial type of a thing I'm talking about. I'm not talking about any power structures here. So it could be anybody, you know. I may want to then uh, imagine how a dictator feels. That doesn't... <laughs> that is also empathy. I'm trying to just be there and see what is this fellow feeling where does he get all these grandiose ideas from you know so it is a, just a uh, it's not to be confused with uh, real life uh, situations but in real life as hmm. you and your fellow uh, brothers and sisters go about making films etc and if you had to be a dictator um, by and large of course individuals are individuals how would people prepare to be a dictator? Like, what's the preparatory preparation process? Like, you go to YouTube and watch Idi Amin videos, you'll see <laughs> what Saddam Hussein was like and how he spoke. Like, what does one do? Like, these are very, very superficial kind of cues. And yeah, yeah, so... yeah. It's, it's, uh, after all, it's an imaginative uh, thing at work, you know. It is not uh, uh, something very definitive. What uh, is authenticity? So, so, uh, like, Charlie Chaplin. <laughs> Famous, uh, yeah, that you know, great film. Of he played it in a very, very <laughs> different <laughs> way, and it was very impactful. So, so you can have all shades there. There's no such uh, rule. How, how would one approach it? You know, each one will uh, take their. So own, let's say the realist filmmaker. So, so realist. Uh, there are actors, you know, who go to great extents to like, if they have to be portray a famished person, they will actually go and starve. Does it help? It helps them. And they do. Does it help they, you as a filmmaker who wants a certain product or outcome or work of art or whatever? I wouldn't go to that extent. I mean, just for my comfort, because for me, it's telling a story. And uh, if, if. What constitutes. Uh, I, I leave it to the actors to interpret to a large extent. And then I respond to that. Okay. So, so. 
But it, let's say it, let's say a lot of room say, for everyone to you let's know. Let's say as a student of world cinema, mm. and not just the films that you made yeah. or yeah. been a part of. Mm. Uh, the kind of films that may have moved you or the ones that yeah. you believe are yeah. you know important works and creations over the over the last 100 years or so um for the ones that stand out mm. that you think have mm-hmm. whatever a certain mm. emotional charge mm. or whatever mm. some authenticity mm. i don't know if that word has any meaning for you mm. is there something common in the way now there must be so many films mm. so it's 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 a little stupid to make periodic tables out of these things but is there something common to the way and let's just stick to maybe the realm of realist cinema or something because one is trying to yeah do something common in all of those uh and this is this is common in, this is from in, the back room this is from the process of producing those works common in the sense of uh, how how are those films made uh how do those actors inhabit those characters how do those directors okay, in terms of performance is there anything common i haven't I'm something thought which about lends it. them that credibility or realism. There are again, like you know, different uh, ways people go about it. Like I don't think there's anything common. Uh, so to give you some unusual examples, okay. So there are people who rely on uh, actors, like what we call professional actors. You know, they will only work with professional actors. who who know the technique of acting who have a body of work in acting and they will only work with them then there are people who will not work with such people at all who work with real people from their life worlds yeah and they are actually filmmakers i teach them you know i such teach as? about them like uh, roberto rossellini he sometimes he may have taken uh, one or two professional actors. actors but his conviction was to work without such people but there are others who will work with actors and then there's this very interesting uh, filmmaker how are those uh, films which is different? very i think from the discussion it may lead to something there's this uh, very interesting uh, french filmmaker and he would uh, when he's casting he has almost unique method in i think entire film history of casting he doesn't call them actors he calls them uh, models now what does he mean that suppose he wants a certain a priest a very angelic priest pure priest a, a noble person he says i want to find such a person in real life not somebody who's going anybody or a professional actor or such and such who plays this thing because that will not work with me so he will audition and it's again uh, how can you say, you will ask you know how can you say no no whatever but but, but what yeah so he comes to some conclusion he calls people and then he sees a certain face and he feels that no this person is is the person he's not going to play the person he is he or she you know and and it has worked for him and that person would have probably only done that film or maybe one more and that's it are people able and to those are very play powerful huh? are people able to play themselves uh yes easily not easily so that is why this process what we call uh, of auditioning is a very important in even this director would audition now auditioning is uh, a process where you know you kind of test out that can the person be comfortable being themselves in an artificial situation 
What is this thing called artificial situation? (laughs) 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 Which is this whole being at home (laughs) question, right? Out of home. Yeah, it's a very interesting thing going on, you know. I'm talking from a very imaginative, this creation world and then... There's because it's real it, it life, all boils what down to that, real right? life, no. and whether we, that is going on in real life also. Because Very you work with these sales sales girls, for example, uh, who come from another place, they're in another place. Now, is it the weirdness, the absurdity of some people would just turn up there and act a certain way and go home and not feel any any anything so contradictory? Has- you know, when when you do a research, for example, of course, you go to the research with your own angle. So my angle was about looking at women who work in the malls. And my question, uh, and I'm still quite preoccupied with the question, I feel it's an incomplete work in some ways, was that they inhabit three completely discursively different spaces, the world of their homes. Of course, there's leakages and, you know, some kind of porous porosity it's not completely separate spaces the world of the mall and i particularly looked at women who were working with objects of desire in the sense cosmetics fashionable clothes shoes and things of that sort and the world of the streets which they had to cross through every day and i really thought if i was a filmmaker i would have done a better job of this you know but the point is that for me the question was how, and particularly in the kind of world we uh, live in now, do these women come to feel, can they come to feel that they belong? Do these become places for them? Or are they spaces in some senses, right? And I think that at one level, if you talk to 30 different women, you will see that there are differences between them. But at another level, I think that they used to definitely experience the stress, also the pleasure. And I think this is where, again... Also the pleasure. Also the pleasure. So I would say that this is where I would turn again, partly to the psychoanalytical frame, to say there was pleasure in becoming these fashionable women, in being able to comment upon them and therefore resist you know, so they would sometimes tell me funny stories like, you know, we can make out what these women do. So what they do is that if they have bought clothes from different kinds of brands, they make sure that the most, the packet from the most expensive brand is, is held out more. At the, most. Uh, uh, yeah, you know, so that, so that the public visible. can see where they have bought from. Yeah, You know, so they would keep the most expensive brand outside in a certain sense. So they're Bindu and Judith Butler are performing. Yeah, yeah. So these women, so they acquired uh, education, to use a term, you know, which some sociologists also use, of the way in which the upper middle class, upper class woman functions. But at the same time, they had to fragment their experience. Because they would take selfies of themselves, for example, in very, you know, fashionable clothes. Yeah, it was very interesting. But they would not be able to take those clothes back home, even if they were being sold dirt cheap. Because those 
inhabit them to certain extents but there was also a great deal of disciplining involved yeah. you know so they mm-hmm. had to keep their hair pulled back they had to have their nails polished and they commented upon this and they said that you know we hate all this makeup so they would say when i go back home if i have a sunday off you know i will wear a salwar kameez i will leave my hair open i will wear my rubber chappals because you know that is where i feel at home but on the other hand to say that they were not acquiring other sensibilities other ways of functioning other selves for that matter yeah would also not be true now here some managed well and some managed badly are there insights there is it just diversity of types of individuals or there's something oh, it has to do with many things it has to do with the compulsion to work it has to do with the violence they have faced mm. right you know it also has to do with uh their self that they brought in in the first place were they curious when they came or were they compelled to work because yeah. there was no money at home the initial you know? motivation oh, matters i yeah. can tell you one little thing like for example a woman who a young girl who was working in a store that was selling you know bras for example mm-hmm. and one day her brother walked in yeah and it was like horrifying for her yeah because she had told them i'm selling you know biscuits or <laughs> you know i yeah. forget what but to be even associated yeah with a shop where you know fashionable uh, undergarments mm. and things are being sold was yeah. not something that so, she was able to take out i'm i'm curious so what the mall. what was the <laughs> what was your frame in looking at it what were you trying to kind of conclude or what are you, you able to go from one world to another cross the boundaries okay how uh, actually what i was interested in looking at is subjectivity mm-hmm. in a neoliberal world huh? and how its character is changing because no one as you rightly said in urban spaces no one occupies one world any longer we do it more as a matter of choice and more on our own terms perhaps huh? i mean perhaps. upper class people but for them this is a world which is both fascinating both a world which could be an object of desire object of desire a path to success and But they would say things like we've learned a lot when i go back to assam i will set up a boutique there are aunties who come and who have shared their wisdom with me they've taught me which are the most fashionable things so just like we will be t- talking about conceptual categories that we have learned in college <laughs> they are also so, so experiencing for uh, in their lives this world in this kind of an environment has affected them in some yeah i was way, not a profound ab- way sorry i was not able to go into this work to the level i wanted to in the sense that i really wanted to ultimately understand whether they're able to hold it together yes but i think my answer would be it varies from yes. person to person but it's always difficult 
there is a very interesting play by Jenne. Uh, heard of the maids? One? Yeah, the maids. It's. Uh, I will revisit after this conversation. I think Bindu knows a lot about maids. So go to the UAE. The the, the, what the maids, maids. The play. Mm-hmm. Uh, I mean, it's way back. So I'm just telling from memory. It's about in one line, maids who, when the mistress is away, play act the mistress. Mm-hmm. Dress mm-hmm. up like they take out the clothes, mm-hmm. they, and they are having a whole thing going, you know, like that. And and he, Jenny is a very, I mean, I would mm-hmm. say a gifted. Mm-hmm. <laughs> I use that word, okay, gifted writer that he's able to, you know, evoke that very, very. So it's a very uh, sensorial and you know that kind of space that he's able to go into and mm-hmm. see the world from the, the way of. How a maid is. Exp- I mean, we only know the other side, perhaps. Mm-hmm, you mm-hmm. know, uh, but he he just turns it around, you know, and 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 there's this play. So can I just say one line here? Actually, my interest was in the contact with the body. Also, mm-hmm. they these objects are in touch with the body. Mm. Yeah, and that was also an area of interest. So, what does that contact do? To mm. the way in which the subjective uh, is experienced, changing yeah the subjective, so, the so, identity, so, why so the body. The, here, here is the thing of fantasy. You know, mm-hmm, mm-hmm. the role of fantasy being uh, explored uh, through this form. Yeah, you know, mm-hmm. in real life they are feeling oppressed or yeah. all the while, and then for a moment they just want to you know come out of it and fantasize this whole thing. Bindu, what's yeah. your take? And you worked in yeah. in a situation which is somewhat analogous. Maybe you yeah. have something so to share. So in fact, uh, it resonates quite a bit with my own work on migrant uh, domestic workers who moved from India to the Middle East. I've been following their labor histories for quite some time before I moved into critical disability studies. So I feel, uh, no, in fact, uh, listening to these two conversations. I feel uh, the paid domestic work per se is a very unique context in which uh, you are uh, a a unique insider, but not necessarily an insider always. Right. No, you don't get a full membership. Yeah. And uh, no, you are in that sense you are an outsider, but you know everything what happens within that home. You know, to the world of your uh, the house where you work. So I have seen that it is also very interesting because, for example, when I was uh, working with the migrant women who moved from India to the Gulf, I was trying to look at uh, their own lives in uh, these two Emirates in UAE, Dubai and Sharjah. I've seen that uh, in order to get some privacy, they have to move out to a public place. Uh-huh. A public place become an imagination of that their home, the privacy they get. They said this is a Friday. The Friday, if I stay, I can stay in my, uh, no, employer's house. Uh, no problem. Nobody will question. But if I stay there, I won't feel, you uh, know, sitting idle when my madam is working. So there is something about that that uniqueness of uh, yeah. paid domestic work. Or you know, often it extended to the gendered labor. So is it that that in order to get that some sort of privacy, my own sense of you no. Know, uh, Rest and uh, everything. I need to come out. So I used to meet, meet them in the public parks in Dubai, and uh, and that is their home in that sense. It's a very, very interesting, actually, actually very interesting image. Self. This is 
being anonymous helps being anonymous yeah no for example in fact uh, one of the ways in which i think that gendered migration is always about getting that anonymity yeah. in that sense you can navigate a lot of things and you know, uh, women moving out from complete uh, reversal session. you know that home is not private for a person who's working there and the public but, becomes but private but mazar you've it's... spoken about urban spaces a few times in many ways like you've talked to a lot of the urban studies people and your son might do this i think one of the features of cities is the anonymity mm-hmm. like a lot of people feel at home in cities precisely because you know they can yes. just be alone in a specific kind of way in a kind of and you plug in plug out at at will it's a plug and play thing and no for example someone like me like no i have moved out of kerala sometime back 25 26 years back i feel that coming to a metropolitan city and bringing that anonymity with me it helps as a woman yeah, to navigate it, it frees. and uh, it uh, you know it you get a sense of liberation you get a sense yes. of uh, you know you can uh, you are not necessarily you know there is no surveillance and i guess uh, it is perhaps gendered it won't be uh, you know for not many cisgendered men may not feel the same in that context maybe no for them but yeah, for but women that anonymous there are situations when you're at home but out of place absolutely absolutely <laughs> that, yeah, yeah. and that's what i also feel that the desire to escape a world which gives you too much identity is as important as the desire to find a space which gives you identity yeah so i think yes, we live is. in that paradox actually yeah. you know as human beings right of wanting to move is that something to... is that something peculiar to modern life does it have anything to do with market economy and all that or you think one would have said something similar 1000 years ago in another civilization or another city and you mean you're not a historian so that's i don't want to like ask stupid questions but does it have anything to do with that or you think it's a human thing no actually i res- normally resist saying things like a human thing i know <laughs> <laughs> you've seen sociologists next to me i'm playing no no, no also you've seen far too many human beings to say human no, things no actually but... <laughs> that is not the the thing i obviously don't know how people were a thousand years ago but <laughs> we can say that people like buddha and so on you know we can see that philosophers and you know so many people were traveling people were asking questions i'm sure the present world has enhanced that uh, quality and perhaps there is more fragmentation in the world which i think is both it has its positives and it has its difficulties i don't like to yeah. put it on uh, in a hierarchy yeah as far as capitalism is concerned i think the most obvious thing i can think of saying is that you know there is a definite manufacturing of needs yeah right so it also you travel as economic agents yeah, primarily to make money mm-hmm. or primarily to earn a living or a livelihood or whatever yeah. so no but i mean it does sometimes enhance the pressure on people to perform in certain ways uh, but on the other hand it also gives creates aspirations to become something other than what they saw their parents as more than capitalism i see it as globalization and neoliberalism which is doing that i'm not sure yeah. about just capitalism yeah. but Accurate. the contemporary version mm-hmm. of it i think with 
the idea that identities are possible which are different from what you were before and you can have multiple identities slip into you one can. from the other have Those, some composites mm, and yes. so on what's the so, future why don't we end with this sorry yeah, you're saying something mazar so, yeah uh, so going towards that i begin go towards the future also with this that you know i feel uh, see this question of identity you know uh, so what uh, coming to cities and living in cities has done is in a way it has uh, diluted or dissolved uh, the identities that were there for a long time you know of region of of you know whatever hometown or you know or a certain uh, even language so you you come from a certain but it gives you the uh, ability to have more voluntary so, so, identities so so that you leave so I, this is how i see it is that you know so there is like uh, rachna was saying so there is the need for both you know you want to detach and now it's happening by force or by choice but it's going on you know and and then you are feel the lack you feel the negative thing about this that you're alone so where do you belong you know and my uh, feeling in terms of looking towards the future would be that you know uh, this sense of belonging uh, needs to be something more than say your ethnicity or your uh, you know whatever that may have been you know if as people we kind of can find a middle ground where i'm not saying that you and it's not possible perhaps in many many centuries it might happen but uh, as we go towards that that should dissolve to an extent to be replaced by other other kinds say, of tribes voluntary yeah. groupings yeah. so okay so what is my i'm a filmmaker i say you know that's become my identity you know that's my community or when i become a teacher i belong to a community of academics and i get along with them because i'm part of that so that becomes one identity there can be several such identities where you can uh, feel a sense of belonging which earlier was only kind of maybe ethnic or religious belonging you know now there is life is affording other opportunities of belonging and uh, at the same time i would not say that i would not deny the sense of belonging that those also give you because they are deep seated so what would be make the return or what would yeah. be the way would be you know like as you know this you need to uh, have that but not very strong yeah is <laughs> is no what, i think there's this whole notion of weak ties strong weak ties, ties and granular so, better yeah so i i i would say that you know if we can have weak ties of ethnicity and uh, strong ties of other kinds it would be a good balance because strong ties of the other kind lead to dangerous results no, when you identify too much with uh, that too strongly and uh, then something else will flip mazar that's how these things <laughs> go i mean you don't know how so, belonging to manchester united club whatever <laughs> that can be dangerous in its own way in its own way where where's the future headed with i What's... i would say that future should be more fluid in that sense uh, i perhaps i'll come back to one of the first early questions you know we thought about uh, how do we make sense so where do we belong now to give an anecdote uh, for a, a long time i've been living in an academic institution i you know i'm a resident in an academic institution for last 23 sure. years 
I've seen that and you must have seen it in other places also. There are this, uh, if you know this uh, cattle grid, cattle grid bar where which uh, yeah. you, you know, basically restrict the entry of cattle in sure. government offices and um, so I used to wonder and some women scholars have written about uh, accessibility for example. It is at some level it's saying that you don't want, you uh, know, cattle to be there and fair enough, you know. These are places you have to work. <laughs> But at the same time, in order to navigate that space, if I'm using, you know, if I have a stick to walk, if I have to, you know, it is so difficult. So then someone would say that this is the question of empathy which comes in, would say that, But why are you so much bothered about that? I can help you with that. So that is, uh, you know, sometimes as a person who embodies, uh, uh, you know, uh, perhaps uh, a disability, Impacts would be very problematic and would say that, why can't you make this space, uh, you know, accessible? You know, what is your imagination of human? In that sense, the moment you say that cats are restricted here, they're not entering here, you are also not allowing certain identities, you know, certain embodied identities are not allowed there. You know, you don't get that primary membership. So if you want to imagine a future, how do we make uh, that imagination? Then you need to also perhaps uh, have much more uh, a fluid articulation. So how do you imagine, what do you really mean by human? No, in that sense, going from this very narrow identity of trying to think about an able-bodied, a liberal space, no, often you try to imagine. it fits and then you would say that but still we will bring in empathy and we will you know and of course with the pat enough patronization that comes in so i would say that uh, is there a possibility to imagine a a world which is much more fluid where you no know, there is possibilities for um, coexistence doesn't mean that of course with our differences and uh, different ways in which we occupy that space But is there a possibility to that? That uh, a, a fluid future is something which I you know, imagine. To. Wonderful. Why don't we end with you, Rashna? Well, I agree actually with what you said. And I would say, add to that, mm -hmm. that, uh, you know, I also am not very uh, fond of the idea of the human in some senses. Because I think it tends to use pre-existing categories of humanity. and exclude those who have not been incorporated into that idea. So, you know, let's say madness. So if reason is what being human stands for, then that person or those people who are, quote unquote, unable to be in reason all the time or able-bodied, mm -hmm. they get excluded. So I think one very important uh, aspect of this and does one take demarcations away or one creates safe spaces and has no, relatability so that's what i'm saying the first thing i mean not the first but i would say an additional thing here is to allow difference but also to allow different epistemologies and different voices to enter the field because quite often what we consider to be knowledge is actually already colonized a kind of dogma yeah. not dogma so much it is speaking from the top right or speaking about a particular notion of the human which is inherently exclusionary so that is one thing i feel in the short run i mean again coming back to my uh, you know psychological identity i would say 
many, many more spaces where, you know, distress, because, you know, the word mad is easy to use, but it also includes very genuine pain and suffering. Right. So I think many, many more spaces where people can turn to someone and share their distress. And I'm not only saying psychiatrists and trained therapists. It can be community workers. It can be religious, you know, leaders of certain Mm -hmm. kinds. Mm -hmm. And so, you know, spaces which are outside the family. I think even though I did centralize the family at one level at the beginning of, you know, this conversation, but I think that we definitely in India overvalue the family as a safe space. It is not. And we need spaces outside the family. So, yeah, that would be another part of my vision. Wonderful. I think on, thank you for all of this. Thank you for making it. And we look forward to having you soon again. Thank you for coming.